Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 is where we're going to quote-unquote camp out this morning. You know, people have done a lot of strange things when it comes to lawsuits in America. Americans kind of do some weird things when it comes to legal issues. Back in 1970, Betty Penrose of Arizona, she filed a lawsuit against God, seeking $100,000 in damages because she blamed God for negligence when a lightning bolt hit her house and caused some damages. When God, quote-unquote, failed to show up in court, she won the case by default. And you think that's kind of crazy back in 2008. Our neighbors to the north, Nebraska, State Senator Ernie Chambers filed a lawsuit against God, making the accusation that God had made terrorist threats against the senator and against his constituents in Nebraska, causing widespread panic because millions of people were going to die on the earth because of all of these natural disasters. Well, a judge threw out the lawsuit against God. And you know why he threw it out? He couldn't serve the papers to God because God did not have an address on file. <laughs> okay? So he threw out the lawsuits. He dismissed it with prejudice. C.S. Lewis wrote some famous essays that were later put into a book called God in the Dock. Now, we don't use that terminology in America, but in England, God on Trial. And basically what C.S. Lewis argued was is that we as humans like to put God on trial where we play judge and jury as opposed to God being the one who's the judge placing humans on trial. God on the dock. Have you ever known somebody who quote-unquote put God on trial? They would not believe in God unless quote-unquote he proves himself. I'm not going to believe in God unless he does things the way I want him to do it on my timetable. And maybe if something bad happens to you, you, you put God on trial. I'm never going to believe in that type of God. Have you ever been so mad at God that you dared question his goodness? You questioned his authority and you played judge and jury against your creator. Now, we may never take God to court or put God on trial. But I wonder if our attitude towards God sometimes pushes that limit. Now, why do I bring this up this morning, putting God on trial? Well, in Exodus chapter 17, it's exactly what the Israelites did in the wilderness against their God. So if you have a copy of the Word of God this morning, Exodus chapter 17 Verse 1 through 7 is our text for this morning. 
all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now let's retrace our steps this morning as far as the Israelites coming out of Egyptian captivity. When they go out of the Red Sea, they first enter into the wilderness of Shur. And if you remember, the water's bitter. And so God has Moses throw the tree into the water. It becomes sweet. And then God takes them to the springs of Elam, where there's 12 springs for them to drink. Then from there, they move on to what's called the Desert of Sin, capital S-I-N. And it's there that they have no food. And they begin to grumble against God. And so God provides the manna and the quail. And now they're moving on from the desert of sin to a place called Rephidim. Now, Rephidim ironically means, in the literal Hebrew, a resting place, a place of rest. But this is not a place of rest because the Israelites, again, have no water to drink. Now, what have they experienced so far related to water? Pretty big miracles, right? Passing through the Red Sea. Water parts on both sides. The bitter water turning sweet. The springs in the desert. God providing for their needs with the manna and the quail at every turn. So what should have the Israelites done at this time when they're struggling with thirst? Had not they learned their lesson, what should they have done besides grumbling and quarreling? They should have called a prayer meeting. And said, we're going we're gonna to pray and we're going to wait on the Lord because we know he's going to bless us. He's going to provide for us. We've seen it time and time again. Let's just wait on the Lord. But is that their pattern? No, they grumble and they complain. Verse 2, they quarreled with Moses there. Now, we look at that word, they quarreled, and maybe it just kind of sounds like it was a minor complaint. They kind of grumbled here and there. That's not what that word means in the original language. Here's what that word means. It means that they are bringing a formal lawsuit against their God. It's a covenant lawsuit. They are suing God. They're taking God to court. That's the language that's used there. 
They are taking God to court. That's what it means to test him. That's what it means to quarrel with him, to bring God on trial, to put God in the dock, if you will. Now, what's been the pattern so far? Exodus chapter 15, verse 25. He cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. God tested them at the waters of Marah. God tested them. God was testing their faith. Okay? Exodus 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain down bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Time and time again, God is testing the faith of the Israelites. God is testing them to see if they're going to trust in him. He's testing them. He's purifying their faith. He's taking them through these trials so that they will rely upon his fresh provision of grace every day. The Lord is testing them. But now the tables are turned. And it's not God who's testing the Israelites. It's the Israelites who are testing God legally, formally, in a lawsuit, they're suing God. Psalm 78, 40 through 41. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They tested him again and again and provoking him. Now, what are their charges? Okay, so this is a formal lawsuit, and they're bringing formal charges against their creator. What are the charges of the lawsuit? What are they guilty? What are they saying God's guilty of? Well, here's the first. First, they demand God. They demand water from God. Look at verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. They demand water from God. They don't ask God for water. They don't throw themselves on God's mercy and wait for water. They put demands on God and say, you must give us water. We're demanding you meet our needs, God. And I wonder how often we put unrealistic demands upon God. How often do we humbly come before God and say, God, I'm at your mercy. God, I'm at your, I'm, I'm your servant. God, I'm going to wait upon you. Or do we walk into God's presence with all the boldness and brashness we can muster and say, God, you owe it to me, so do it now. I'm demanding you. Give me water now. There's a great example of how we should pray that comes from the mouth of Daniel, of all people. In Daniel chapter 9, um, on Tuesday nights, every other Tuesday night, are 20-something small groups going through the book of Daniel. It's been an enjoyable uh, time going through that. And, and a few weeks ago, we went through prayer in Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel plays, prays an interesting prayer. So, so in Daniel chapter 9, he's an old man. Okay, Daniel's an old man by now. At the beginning of the book of Daniel, he's a teenager. He's been dragged out of Jerusalem. He's been taken 800 miles away to Babylon. He's in Babylonian captivity. He's undergone all this indoctrination by King Nebuchadnezzar. And here he is at the end of his life, and he knows from the book of Jeremiah that the Israelites are only supposed to be in captivity for 
70 years. And so it's getting to the very end of that 70 years, and, and Daniel's getting a little nervous. Daniel's getting a little antsy because God has not answered the prayer to bring them back to Jerusalem. But I want you to listen to Daniel's prayer. It's a deep, passionate prayer, but notice his attitude. And it's the same attitude the Israelites should have had praying to the Lord in the desert. Daniel chapter 9, 17 through 18. This is Daniel's prayer. Now, therefore, O our God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. See Daniel's attitude? God, I really want you to act. God, I really want you to answer this, but I'm not coming to you in prayer, giving you my resume saying you have to answer it in the way I want you to answer it. I'm not obligating you, God. I'm not putting demands upon you. I'm saying it's, it's strictly because of your mercy, God, that I'm coming to you. So I cast myself at your mercy. Please act on behalf of your servant. That's not what the Israelites did. God, you owe us water. Give me water. They make demands upon God. That's charge number one. They demand from God. Here's number two. They accuse God of bringing them out in the desert simply to kill them. Basically what they're saying is, God, I'm questioning your goodness. Notice what it says in verse 3. But the people thirsted for water there. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? God, the only reason you've brought us out of here in the desert is to kill us. And they're questioning God's goodness. Now, had not God been good to them time and time again? This is a false accusation against God. Of course God did not bring them out there to kill them. Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you and have worked for those who take refuge in you and the sight of the children of mankind. God's abundant in goodness. Psalm 145, verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy over all that He's made. This should have been the expression of the Israelites to the Lord. Lord, you're good. Lord, we can trust you. You've been good. We're just going to wait upon you to provide water because we know you're a good God. We know you're abundant in goodness, so we're going to wait upon you, Lord. But no, they say, God, you brought us out here to kill us. We're going to question your goodness. And if that's not bad enough, here's the, here's the third charge. It's in verse 7. They doubt God's presence among them. At the end of verse 7, they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? God must not be here. We thought God was here, but He's not. He's distanced Himself from us. He's far off. He's not around. He's not here. He doesn't care about us. He's not attentive to our needs. He just has left us out here for dead. So God, I'm demanding from you water because you owe it to me. God, you've only brought me out here to kill me because you're not good. And God, you're not even here. What does Psalm 46.1 say? God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in times of trouble. 
course God was there. They just weren't waiting upon him. This should have been their attitude. God, we know you're an ever-present help in times of trouble. We're going to wait. We've seen you act time and time again. We know you're good. We're not going to demand from you, God, because we know that you're a gracious provider. We are going to wait. We're going to pray. We're going to submit ourselves to you because, God, you're good, you're faithful, and you've met our needs time and time and time again. But instead of that, they bring a lawsuit against God. Now, let's think about the irrational boldness of the Israelites for a moment. It's pretty irrational to do so. It's pretty bold. But think about yourself for a moment. Think about ourselves. How often do we do the same things? God, I'm going to make an unrealistic demand upon you. God, you must not be good. And God, where are you? You must not be here. You must not care about me. Now, what do they do in light of these formal charges? These are formal charges. This is a formal lawsuit. They are bringing God into court and suing him. So what do they demand for justice? Well, they want to execute judgment. But can they kill God? Can't kill God, can you? So what are they going to do? Let's kill his representative. Let's stone Moses to death. Somebody's got to deserve to die here. Can't kill God, so let's kill Moses. Okay, look at verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Here's their thought process. Okay, this is their, their, their twisted thought process. If God has been so cruel to bring us out in the desert just to kill us and make us die, we might as well kill somebody before we go. And let's kill Moses because he's led us on this wild goose chase and justice has to be done, so let's stone him. If somebody's going to die, let's just make sure Moses gets stoned before we all die in the wilderness. Can't kill God, we'll kill Moses. So this is not just, hey, we're kind of complaining against God. This is an outright rebellion. This is putting God on trial. These are serious false charges leveled against their creator, and they're demanding justice against God. Here's the formal charge. God, you're not good. God, you're not faithful. God, you're not present. And by the way, God, you owe it to us. And because you're not coming through, we're going to kill Moses. It's a very serious charge. Now here's where this episode gets almost surreal. What would you expect to come out of the mouth of God? Are you putting me on trial? Israelites, how dare you? You would not be out of Egypt if it were not for me. I provided manna and quail every day for you. I provided water from the streams. I have given you everything you needed. And if anybody needs to die here, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be Moses. It's going to be you, Israelites. How dare you put me on trial? Now, is that what God does? Do you see that come out of his mouth? Okay, this is a formal lawsuit. So in a formal lawsuit, there needs to be some proceedings. And back in that culture, the elders of the, of the Israelites served as witnesses. So Moses has to assemble some witnesses so that there's not any um, things going wrong in, in the lawsuits of uh, that day. So in verse 5, 
The Lord said to Moses, kill the Israelites because they deserve it. Is that what your Bible says? No. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Okay, you've got to take witnesses because if you guys are going to bring me on trial, there's got to be witnesses. This is a formal proceeding. God in the dock, God on trial. Bring witnesses, bring elders. And number two, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Now remember the staff? Moses struck the Nile and it turned to blood. What's the staff a picture of? God's justice against idolatry, against sin. Moses' staff is representative of God's judgment. It's the staff of judgment. When he hit the Nile River in judgment, it turned to blood. So Moses, take the elders with you and take your staff. And verse 6 is the crux of this entire passage of Scripture. And don't ask me to explain exactly everything that's going on here because I don't know. But here's what I do know. We need to read it very carefully. Carefully read your Bible. Verse 6. This is God speaking. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. Why does God himself stand before Moses and the elders? Who's on trial here? When you come before the bar of God's judgment, who stands before whom? Humans always stand before God. God does not stand before humans as the one on trial. If anybody needs to stand before God at the bar of judgments, it's sinful humans. But what does God do? God says, listen, I'm going to stand before you. You're going to put me on trial? I will be on trial. I will stand before you. Who's guilty in this scenario? Is it God? Absolutely not. The Israelites are guilty. Now, here's the ironic twist God is the eternal judge who is not guilty, but he's going to bear the rod of judgment in the place of their rebellion. Who deserves to be punished? The Israelites. Who's going to stand and receive the punishment for the lawsuit? God. What does Moses do? Strike the rock, and water shall come out of it. Moses, take that rod of judgment and strike the rock that I am standing upon and let the elders witness that judgment is being done. You're bringing me on trial. I'll take the punishment. Now, we don't know how God stood there before them. We just know that he did. But where's the rock of Horeb, you may ask? The rock of Horeb. Horeb is just another name for Sinai, Mount Sinai. This was probably very close to the very spot where earlier God showed up to Moses in the burning bush and said, I am who I am. It's probably very close to where that encounter took place. In the Old Testament, God is often referred to as the rock. Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock. His work is perfect, 
for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. The Lord is the rock. He's the righteous one. He's not the guilty one. He's perfect. He's the one who executes judgment. Psalm 95.1, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Now, they're at Rephadim, which means resting place, right? But there's the rock of Horeb that Moses strikes, and then Moses gives it two names, two legal names, because it's a legal lawsuit. Notice what it says there. Verse 7, he called the name of the place Massah. And Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord there by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So Massah, and you may have a little footnote in your Bible, Massah means to test, to test the Lord. Meribah means to bring a lawsuit or to quarrel or to dispute with God. And they're at Rephidim, the place of rest. So is it a place of rest or is it a place of test? It's a place of testing. It's a lawsuit. They're bringing charges against God. That he's unfaithful. He's cruel. He's left them there for dead. They want to execute Moses. And so what does God do? God says, listen, rebellious Israelites who deserve to die by the rod of my judgment. Actually, God could have commanded Moses to strike the people and they would have all died with the rod of that judgment. And God says, listen, I'm going to stand before you. I'll be, on, I'll be on trial. I'll put myself on trial. I'll stand before you on the rock. I'll take the punishment. And guess what happens when I take the punishment? Gushing water will flow and you will have your needs provided for. It doesn't make sense. Now what does all this mean? Well, we're not left in the dark because Paul gives us a very interesting statement about what happened back then. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4 states this. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Okay, talking about the cloud, the pillar of cloud. They all passed through the sea, that's the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, that's the manna. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was. Christ. Now that's interesting. Jesus was the rock in the wilderness that was struck. Now it's important that we need to understand when we read our Bibles what's going on here. There are some things that happen in the Old Testament that are confusing, that are what we call types and shadows and, and, and images that we don't quite fully understand until a New Testament writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, i.e. Paul, explains it for us. And so Paul says that rock that was struck was actually Christ. Now, you look at your, you look at your Bible and say, now, I don't see anywhere in the book of Exodus where it speaks about Jesus. I don't see Jesus in Exodus 17. Well, you don't. You see it in a type and shadow until Paul explains it. It says the spiritually what was going on there was God was being struck with the rod of judgment in the place of sinners so that they could have their provisions met. What's this foreshadowing? What's the rock being struck picturing? The cross. The cross of Christ. 
Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, died in the place of guilty sinners on trial, was struck with God's justice so that you and I could be forgiven. You and I could have our sins paid for. Who deserves the rod of God's judgment? We do. Who took the rod of God's judgment? Jesus did. He was struck. Now, here's where the Bible gets very, very interesting. Isaiah chapter 53 is that great Old Testament prophecy about Jesus, the suffering servant. And listen to the language that Isaiah uses of Jesus on the cross and see if it sounds similar to Moses striking the rock. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You go back and you read the original language in that Hebrew, in that Isaiah passage, when it says he was smitten. When Jesus was smitten by God, it's the same exact Hebrew word when Moses struck the rock. He smote the rock. He struck the rock. Jesus was struck with God's justice. When Jesus died on the cross, the Father laid upon him the justice we deserved, the penalty we deserved. Romans 8.32 he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare. The Father did not spare Jesus. Spare him what? The cross. Being struck. Being crucified. Taking our punishment. It's no coincidence that the Apostle John alludes to the passage in Exodus when he talks about Jesus dying on the cross. Okay, go back and read verse 8. I'm sorry, read verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock, and water shall gush out of it, shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Okay, John 19.34. John 19.34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. What gushed out of Jesus' side? Blood and water, the way that the water gushed out of the rock when he was struck. Now, what was the apex or the crescendo of the Israelites' charge against God? In verse 7, it's the, it's the apex, it's the crescendo, it's the high point of what they're saying. Is the Lord among us or not? Obviously not. He's left us out here to die. What's their charge? God is not here. He's left us. But let me just tell you, God was there in a way that they could have never imagined. God was among them in a powerful way. God was not among them, but he stood before them. Not among them, but before them willing to take the punishment they deserved, and he was struck so that they could have water. 
the holy God, the great I am, the one who is the rock, stood on the rock so that the guilty people who would put God on trial could have flowing water to drink. Who wanted just moments earlier to kill Moses because they had put God to the test. In the same way, Jesus has done something for you that you could never imagine. He hung on the cross in the place of guilty sinners, even though he alone was never guilty. And he was willing to be before you on the cross, in your place, and to be struck with all of the justice and all of the penalty that your sin deserved so that you would never, ever have to be struck with that penalty yourself. The weight of God's justice came down upon Jesus so that you would never have to experience that yourself. It's amazing that way back in the Old Testament, God was making a promise in the gospel. God was saying, listen, I'm going to take the punishment in your place so that you can have streams of living water to drink. What did Jesus say on the day of that great feast in John 7? John 7, 37 through 38. On the last day of the great feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This whole story is counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It doesn't make sense. Because here's the thing. Everything in that story pointed to Israel getting crushed with the rod of God's judgment, but he does not do that. Instead, he provides water. And we're like, this doesn't make sense. They should have been punished. Everything in the gospel says the same thing. Everything about your life points to the fact that you and I deserve God's justice. We deserve God's punishment. We deserve to pay for our sins. And instead of God doing that upon us, he does it upon Jesus as the spiritual rock that was struck for us. Because think about it. We have rightfully been condemned because of our sins. We put God on trial time and time and time again. We accuse God of not being good. We accuse God of not being there. We're the ones that put God on trial. And instead of condemning us and saying, you're the ones that deserve to be on trial, guilty, 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 go to hell forever, God says, you know what? I'm going to stand in your place. I'm going to send my son Jesus to die on the cross and take the punishment you deserve. So how do you respond to this? Well, Psalm 95 gives a great commentary on what happened at Massah and Meribah. It's the name of these two places, the, the, the two names of the place, Massah testing Meribah lawsuit. Psalm 95, 6 through 9. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. You can have two responses to the cross of Christ this morning. 
you can look at Jesus dying on the cross and you can just continue in your hardness of heart. Today, if you hear his voice, you can harden your heart. You can continue to put the Lord to the test. You can continue to put God on trial. You can continue to, to question his goodness and say, you know what, no matter what Christ has done, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to harden my heart. I'm not going to listen to his voice. I'm not going to bow. I'm going to run my own life. Thank you very much, Jesus, but I'm in charge. That's one way you can respond. You can harden your heart. Or you can do what the psalmist says. Oh, come let us worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. He's our God. We're his sheep. And when you hear the voice of the shepherd as a sheep, what do you do? You don't harden your heart. You, you listen to your shepherd. You bow before your shepherd. You submit to Jesus as the only one who can give you eternal life, the only one that can give you unending joy, and the only one that can give you complete forgiveness. And just like the water came flowing out of the rock, Jesus promises to give you living water flowing out of your soul through the power of the Holy Spirit to give you that joy, to give you that hope, to give you that peace, to give you that assurance. Only he can quench your spiritual thirst. So Manga Baptist Church, I'm going to ask us to do what the psalmist asked us to do. If you're physically able to, I'm going to ask you to come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. So if you are physically able, I'm just going to ask you to kneel where you're at. You may want to come to the front. You may want to kneel where you are. We're just going to kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. And we're just going to spend just a few moments in prayer. Asking for soft hearts. Listening to the voice of our shepherd. Thanking Jesus that he was struck for us. And doing whatever you need to do in your hearts to go before your great God. So let's just spend a few moments in silent prayer as we kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. When we kneel, it puts us in a posture of dependence, a posture of submission, a posture of helplessness, and we want to bow before you this morning. Jesus, we want to pause and we want to stop and we want to just thank you for being struck for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the rock. All of God's justice against our sin came down upon you in our place. And Father, you had every right to execute justice upon us because we're the ones that are guilty. But instead, you poured it out upon your son so that we could be forgiven, we could be cleansed, we could be freed, we could have eternal life. Lord, never in a million years would we have thought of this story. Lord, if we had been God, we would have killed the Israelites there in the wilderness. But Father, I'm thankful that you stood before them and the rock was struck and gushes of water came out showing how gracious you are to provide for rebels that slap you in the face time and time again. Oh, how we've done that. But oh, how you continue to love us. 
And so, Lord, would our response this morning be that as we've heard your voice, we would not harden our hearts, but we'd listen and we'd bow down and we'd submit and we'd be thankful. And we would, as we sang earlier, let the cry of our heart be all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. We honor you today. We praise you on this day. And Lord, if there's anybody in this room that has not truly placed their faith in you, would today be the day they do that? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.